1: Each year, the TCI Global Conferences bring together experts from around the globe to create progress in the practice of cluster development, regional competitiveness, and innovation support. This year, their 26th annual conference headed to Reykjavik, Iceland, under the theme, New Landscapes in Cluster Development, with a focus on sustainable and inclusive ecosystems that foster entrepreneurships, embrace digital technologies, and connect globally. We were there. And today, we're going to explore some of those landscapes. Naturally, I wanted to visit Reykjavik's FinTech cluster while we were there, but I also wanted to connect the dots to the innovation taking place in some of the other clusters that are active there. Startups, health tech, renewable energy, gaming, and even the ocean cluster, the so-called blue economy. TCI describes the idea of clusters as little hubs of brilliance buzzing with innovation where intellectual capital and talent thrives and new ideas spark, creating the perfect environment for success. It's a middle school essay writing trope to reduce description of a complex geographic and geopolitical environment to simply a land of contrasts. But it is an apt representation here. After all, Iceland's most famous nickname is the land of fire and ice. Due to its combination of glaciers and active volcanoes, one of which started rumbling restlessly while I was there. Our gracious hosts at Business Iceland scheduled a stop for the visiting press to the iconic Blue Lagoon, the famous natural geothermal spa located near Grindavík, just southwest of Reykjavík. This is probably a good time to apologize in advance for my horrible pronunciation of Icelandic names. Grindavík and Reykjavík are two of the easiest, so it only gets worse from here. If this were a written report, you'd never know how badly I'll be butchering the names of some people and places who deserve better. I have spell check. I need pronunciation check. You may have seen Grindelweck in the news lately. The city was evacuated after massive chasms ripped open in the street. The earth gaped wide from the larger of thousands of earthquakes that have literally been rocking the world over the past several weeks. When we arrived at the Blue Lagoon, the staff told us that part of the spa was closed due to this magma-induced seismic activity, and they gave us a brief overview of evacuation procedures. The tremors continued to worsen, and they shut down operations a couple of days after our visit as a precaution. This was the first of several times I would hear a famous Icelandic phrase, one that is deeply embedded in the lexicon of Icelanders and one that is used so often it's considered by some to be the unofficial motto of Iceland, Tettarrðast, which loosely translates in English to It'll work out okay. Maybe nothing exemplifies the typical Icelandic mindset I discovered during my visit as succinctly as those two words, Tettarrðast. It may be a gross oversimplification to write it off as merely positive thinking, I learned it's also about quickly confronting large and complex challenges and harnessing the collective power of entrepreneurs, corporations, universities, and government to understand the root causes and to learn and apply new approaches. After an ethereal welcome by an Icelandic folk music trio, the TCI Global Conference opened with Osla Gárna Sigrbörnstáttr, Iceland's Minister of Higher Education, Science, and Innovation, who shared an anecdote about why innovation has been a cornerstone of life in Iceland. In the 1980s, cod fishing was about 80% of Iceland's exports, and overfishing led to a national crisis. This forced the industry and the government to find better, more efficient, and more sustainable ways of operating. Today, the ocean cluster in Reykjavik is a community of over 70 companies and entrepreneurs in the blue economy, including companies in aquaculture, fish sales, and marine technology, but also in software, design, biotechnology, cosmetics, supplements, proteins, pharmaceuticals, and other high-value products that are produced from different parts of the fish. Icelanders use up to 90% of every fish they catch, while many nations throw away byproducts that can amount up to 30 to 40% of the catch a valuable resource that most often winds up in landfills or is thrown into the sea. One of the most valuable beverage brands in Iceland is Colab, a unique caffeinated carbonated drink that contains collagen produced from fish skins that would normally be disposed of as a waste product. It doesn't taste fishy. It comes in familiar fruit flavors like cherry and apricot, passion fruit and lime, and strawberry and lemon. But unlike other popular drinks of this kind, This one helps reduce the waste from the seafood industry. During the 2008 global economic crisis, Iceland experienced a severe economic collapse that was among the most dramatic in the world. The crisis had a profound impact on the country's financial system, currency and overall economy. All three of the country's major banks collapsed, leading to one of the most severe regional recessions in the world. Inflation skyrocketed and unemployment more than quadrupled, sparking huge national protests. As The Guardian put it,
2: Iceland is on the brink of collapse. Inflation and interest rates are raging upwards. The krona, Iceland's currency, is in freefall.
1: Leaders acted decisively to implement economic reforms to stabilize the financial system. Bankers were investigated and prosecuted for market manipulation and fraud, and dozens, including the CEO of Landesbanken, were sent to prison. The Prime Minister resigned and capital controls and currency restrictions were put in place. The economy gradually recovered, and by the 2010s, Iceland experienced steady economic growth. Today, Iceland has a high standard of living and its citizens enjoy access to quality health care and education and a relatively low level of income equality. Iceland's fintech cluster is headquartered in Groska, the innovation hub located at the University of Iceland Science Park. The UI Science Park was established by the university in 2004 as a joint venture with the city of Reykjavik. Clad in large glass windows with prominent vertical wood panels counterbalanced with large concrete surfaces, the building is a modern four-story Scandinavian design that blends harmoniously with the Icelandic landscape. The skylit atrium features a massive wall of live plants and an open staircase that meanders upward like a folding ruler, which inspired the center's logo. Gunnlöger Jönsson is the CEO of Iceland's FinTech cluster.
3: We're bringing together all the relevant players in the ecosystem. So uh, uh, the largest banks in the country are our members. Also the earliest of startups, even startups that are just on the idea phase have have joined us. We have uh, more than 100 members, and we have this innovation center here, in which we have um, around 10 members of the community. But of course, they're spread around uh, around Reykjavik mostly and the uh, surrounding municipalities. Um, so we are um, we're tiny. Iceland is tiny, as you may know, <laughs> and uh, we so we work a lot with other clusters. Uh, the core of which are our neighboring countries, the the Nordic
1: countries. With the espresso machine hissing away in their large open lobby, Janssen described the value of the Iceland-Fintech cluster's reciprocal relationships with other countries in the Nordic-Fintech alliance and beyond. Iceland is not a large country. Its population is about 370,000 people. That's about the size of Florence, Italy, Canberra, Australia, or... Honolulu, Hawaii, or it's even smaller than Bristol in the UK.
3: Because Iceland is so tiny, we, we sort of, we need to rely on them. For example, there's only 40s and me here at the, at Reykjavik FinTech, while in Denmark, they have 17 people. So for example, they're much better at relations in Asia than we are, and they bring Icelandic companies, have introduced Icelandic companies there. That's very good. We're just a part of an international cluster network. We also have uh, alliances with clusters in in other countries. And uh, if there's anyone here from any such cluster that would like to connect or has a connection with any cluster of that kind, it would be great. Iceland is, even though it's tiny, it's uh, considerably large in FinTech compared to its size. Um, And the reason for that is, of course, that Iceland is quite isolated. We have our own currency. We're in the middle of the Atlantic. We have our own uh, culture and language and our own legal system. And so we've had to build all the financial infrastructure uh, as a large country would. And this has enabled a lot of people to to uh, get to know finance and and fintech that wouldn't have. We have uh, thousands of people that know something about finance and fintech, which a comparable size city, let's say, in England wouldn't have. So uh, Bristol in England, which is about the same uh, same size as Iceland as a a whole, uh, wouldn't have uh, all these different things. If there are aspiring people there, they would go to London. I would suppose. And they use all the financial infrastructure around London mostly.
1: Jonsson also described how the collapse of the Icelandic banking system actually helped to spur growth and innovation in fintech.
3: You, you may be aware that in the banking crisis of 2008, the whole Icelandic banking system collapsed. And that was because the Icelandic banks had grown to 12 times GDP around other countries and didn't have a lender of last resort, banks in other countries did when that crisis hit, Um, but through all of that and through all of that growth outside Iceland, we also have a lot of exposure to finance and fintech, even been examples where uh, fintech companies have been founded on the basis of that. For example, it was um, a disastrous deposit scheme that one of the banks had in the Netherlands.
1: Disastrous may even be putting it mildly iSave was an online high-yield savings brand started by Langebanki in 2006 that operated in the UK and the Netherlands. Hundreds of thousands of British and Dutch savers lost deposits worth billions of euros after the bank went bust when Iceland's financial system collapsed in 2008. This led to an international diplomatic crisis between the three countries, which dragged on for years.
3: Um, and and that was based on a pretty good technology, an internet bank that was considered very good in in the Netherlands. And uh, so they got a lot of uh, customers there. But a group of people, both Dutch and Icelandic, bought that software out of the failed bank, created a company around it, and they're now selling that system and a lot of other core banking systems around the world.
1: Today, FinTech thrives in Iceland. On a per capita basis, it's second only to Estonia for VC dollars raised in Europe and nearly eight times the European average.
3: We have the most, um, the fastest growing sector of the Icelandic fintech scene right now, I would say, is, is blockchain.
1: One of the companies based in the fintech cluster at Groska is Monarium, which is the first company licensed to issue fiat currency
4: on blockchain. Uh, my name is Sven Balfos. I'm uh, one of the co founders and the CEO of Monarium, which is the first company authorized to issue fiat on blockchain. It's as in US dollars, as in uh, euros, as in uh, sterling, as in Icelandic krona. So. Uh, We were authorized in 2019 under European rules. It turns out that Europe has had uh, a license for what what the Europeans call electronic money, but what effectively is stablecoin. Uh, And it's had this license since 2000. Um, It's been used by dozens of companies uh, for various purposes, primarily prepaid cards, then for mobile wallets, and then... um, Uh, online services, but we're the first company authorized to issue um, electronic money, a.k.a. fiat stablecoins, on blockchains under European rules. And since the U.S. doesn't have rules for stablecoins, arguably we are the first company in the world to get the proper authorization to issue fiat money on-chain. I asked Sven Wolfels to explain
1: the advantages of issuing fiat currency on-chain.
4: Is that you get the the certainty of... um, having a regulated financial instrument on chain that is fully interchangeable with bank deposits, fully interchangeable and fungible with cash, and all the consumer protection of any other financial services company. So our fiat on chain is is the same fiat as you would use when you're transacting with TransferWise or, or PayPal or Revolut in Europe. So it's fully one-to-one, redeemable, exchangeable for any other uh, bank deposit or comparable e-money uh, instrument.
1: So that eliminates the volatility of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So what are the advantages of being on-chain?
4: Well, uh, the, the advantage of being on-chain is uh, having faster, cheaper, uh, more flexible transactions. But we, the Web3 has not really been fully accessible to uh, mainstream uh, users, uh, whether individuals or companies, because you've had these intermediaries like rounds and exchanges uh, that uh, you you need to go to to buy stablecoin, um, uh, which mostly are poor proxy or unregulated uh, instruments. What we have done, because we're regulated, authorized, fully backed, fiat on chain, we are um, uh, we we can interconnect with all the basic infrastructure provided by the European uh, payment systems, for example. And what we've done, which is also our our first, is that we've integrated the main payment systems of the major currency of Europe, Euro, with Web3, meaning that using our services, you can send money from any bank account within the European payment system uh, uh, to a blockchain wallet and back instantly, seamlessly. And um, uh, and we're not charging anything for it.
1: So no gas fees.
4: There, there's no gas fees. There's no transfer fees. And, and so you can move your euro from any bank account in Germany, Lithuania, Italy, um, Belgium, wherever it is, you can send it to what um, is known in Europe as an IBAN address that we issue. We provide you with a, a like what's the equivalent, European equivalent of a routing number plus a bank account number. Right. Uh, which routes the funds directly to your Web3 wallet or your smart contract. So you can send the money and receive money to your uh, IBAN, your Web3 IBAN, from any uh, you know, friend or a business partner into that Web3 IBAN, and it magically appears in your MetaMask or in your safe wallet. And then we provide the same service uh, going back. So we, we seamlessly integrate Web3 with the tri 5 banking systems. And uh, that is uh, enables all kinds of things to start happening, which otherwise would not be efficient or economical. So we're seeing uh, combine, this service combined with the regulatory certainty that the MICA regulation in Europe provides is got, is powering all kinds of mainstream use cases that are coming online. One of the use cases that we're powering is a visa payment card, which allows you to pay at any terminal, visa terminal, uh, using our eurozone chain. Uh, uh, another use case that we're powering um, in, in this quarter is, is settling uh, share transactions on chain in, in a German company. So so it's both primary and secondary offering of a German company. So there's all these use cases are coming online in Europe now because number one, we have regulatory certainty. And number two, uh, Monarium has provided... Uh, a seamless integration between the European banking systems uh, and Web3. So there's no intermediaries. There's not, not the friction or the cost or the latency of going through an exchange or a wrap.
1: I asked Sven about the huge gap between Web3 and the traditional payments infrastructure and what he thinks it'll take to bridge that gap.
4: It is a huge gap. And uh, just like um, in the uh, earliest days of the World Wide Web, you had dial-up, right? So you had dial up to get online you actually had to uh, use a modem of some sorts to to get your computer hooked up to the internet. And now all these connections are seamless. There, there's a comparable technical gap in in for web3 to be bridged with the the tradfi systems and there's also a comparable regulatory gap because there's um, uh, essentially the while there are regulations for financial services in place they need to be adapted and interpreted in order to facilitate and, uh, and enable transactions using web3 europe essentially has bridged uh, the regulatory gap and we uh, using our services have bridged the technical gap uh, under the regulatory umbrella um, and inside this regulatory framework we we bridged the technical gap of moving money in and out of uh, Blockchain, uh, seamlessly, instantly, and uh, at at zero cost.
1: Beyond closing the regulatory and technical gaps, a large part of the work that still needs to be done is tokenization, which is essentially substituting sensitive data elements with anonymized or tokenized data that has no intrinsic or exploitable
4: value. Well, well, the next wave of adoption we see uh, in our inbounds is essentially... Uh, all these token, there's a lo- number of tokenization platforms coming online in Europe that are tokenizing all kinds of real world assets. They're tokenizing uh, debt, they're tokenizing equity, uh, they're to- tokenizing commodities, they're tokenizing all kinds of hard assets. So it will take a time uh, for these platforms to come online. Uh, it, it's happening now, but it's, it's sort of like the early days of, of the internet, first uh, worldwide web pages, the web pages coming online. So so you can start surfing soon. You can start surfing in the sense that you're not really surfing content, but you're surfing assets. And you can um, already see um, some of the sort of early instances of that uh, happening uh, in protocols like, uh, there's a protocol called COWSWAP, which is uh, C-O-W, which uh, stands for coincidence of wants. You can start surfing assets and start seeing. You can use the euro and exchange it against um, uh, whatever other asset. Crypto assets are the primary assets still out there, but then you can start surfing uh, and, and exchanging, uh, looking for uh, actively to exchange your euro for um, uh, a, a, a share in a German company, for example. Uh, and this is happening now, this is happening uh, as we speak.
1: Part of the challenge in bridging these gaps is that various parties have to agree on
4: standards. They have to agree on standards. So so think about that. Money is a standard in in, in some sense. It's a standard to facilitate the exchange of value um, across distance and time and between people and companies, right? So, And in modern society, you have a common standard, uh, which is, so you could say imposed, but introduced by the government, right? And this money standard that in the U.S. is called the U.S. dollar and, and a lot of, most of Europe is called the euro. This standard has to be uh, on Web3 to facilitate the exchange of goods and services on Web3. So and we have provided that key dependency for mainstream economy to take off in Web3.
1: I asked Fen about the crypto scene in Iceland and how it's been evolving over the years.
4: Well, I, I actually first came across uh, crypto or Bitcoin uh, uh, during a holiday in California. And at the time, I was living in London. So, so I, I came late to the Icelandic crypto scene. Uh, so Iceland, um, I think the most notable event in Iceland w- when it comes to um, crypto is that it's the first uh, uh, nationwide airdrop of a new cryptocurrency, which happened in 2014, so um, uh, there was a, a coin called Aurora coin that was dropped on the entire nation, about 10% of the people uh, uh, redeemed it. But most people exchanged it for, for Bitcoin and sold it, uh, so, so it never really took off. So, so that to me is a lesson in how difficult it is to get a new currency going. Currencies are very sticky phenomena. Uh, and even in a nation like Iceland, which at the time was still recovering from the 2008 crisis and had foreign exchange controls and various other, uh, you know, uh, special measures imposed to help uh, restore the financial services here. Um, Even then, it was very difficult to get a new currency to take off.
1: I was also curious about how the systemic relevance of decentralized finance might have been impacted by the global financial crisis, given how broad and deep the pain was felt in Iceland.
4: No, I think Iceland was the epicenter of 2008. Uh, thankfully, the, the country has uh, recovered since then. But in, in the context of 2008, uh, what, what is the relevance, the systemic relevance of blockchains uh, to not just Iceland, but, but the, um, the rest of the world as well, is to provide an alternative way of, of storing and sending uh, value uh, to the too big to fail uh, financial institutions so I think um, web 3 essentially is a fantastic addition to the financial ecosystem and also institutions such such as ourselves we are a Monarium is an electronic money institution uh, we are essentially uh, focused on providing just digital cash and nothing else. We don't make any loans so issuing money uh, on chain, is it provides an alternative to our uh, users to hold and store money in in ways that is independent of a bank and it, it legally also it's really important to note that electronic money institutions we don't uh, issue we, we safeguard funds we we the the funds that we hold are legally our users funds and they're kept separate from our own funds um so it's it's a safer arrangement in, in most respects than holding money with a regular bank.
1: Needless to say, Sven is very bullish on Web3 and DeFi as a force for good.
4: Web3 is just about to unfold in a major way. It will be uh, slower than, in many ways, the internet because it's a permissioned system. Financial services are permissioned and they need to be permissioned, just like transportation needs to be permissioned and regulated. So, but it's going to be a huge wave of innovation. Um, uh, you, You can't be bullish enough on DeFi, in my view.
1: Maybe financial crime, money laundering, and fraud will be a thing of the past in a decentralized Web3 world, but somehow I doubt it. They are certainly things of the present, everywhere in the world. And those who are fighting and investigating financial crime have a difficult task of sorting through a massive amount of data from many sources, and it can be challenging and time-consuming to separate signal from noise. Lucinity is an Iceland-based company that's trying to make life easier for these investigators through new tools, including generative AI. Selena Pablo is Lucinity's Senior Marketing Manager.
5: Lucidity uh, was founded in uh, 2018, in November. And back then, um, all the way up up until now, we've been working on a suite of different products. So we have our case management solution, uh, actor intelligence, regulatory reporting, and then also our Lucy Copilot solution. So I can take you through an example of what a day in the life of an analyst looks like, for example. Um, So in an analyst's day, they spend about... Uh, six hours of their day looking into different uh, systems trying to combine different data sources and understand whether a particular uh, case is a potentially suspicious case of money laundering or whether it's just a false positive. So they receive an overwhelming amount of data and they're just trying to like filter through this and make sense of this data. So, what Lucidity does is we provide one solution and one place where an analyst can find all that information, and we paint a picture of the story of um, that case so that an analyst can determine whether it is suspicious or not. And on top of that, we have the Lucy Copilot solution, which is a newly launched generative AI uh, solution. It is one of the first um, of its kind out there in this market. And it essentially guides the analyst through the process, helping them make uh, sense of the data and provide greater insights. Also automating some of their tasks and helping them with, uh, for example, writing a disposition narrative. Um, And it can essentially take a case review time from two and a half hours, three hours. Some cases take like three to four days to review, all the way down to 30 minutes
1: part of what can make the process so challenging and time-consuming is legacy systems.
5: Yes. So one of the biggest challenges is that um, a lot of financial institutions, especially bigger banks, are um, leveraging or using legacy systems that they've put in place uh, 20 years ago. And this can consist of very clunky systems that have really bad user experience or a mix of Excel spreadsheets. And um, it's it's really hard for them to let go of these systems because um, they've invested a lot in these systems as well. There is a lot of um, processes built into them. We don't require the financial institutions to rip and replace their systems. We then sit on top of their existing technology and augment it with um, f- additional insights. So... Uh, Yes, essentially, it's being able to uh, take the data that comes out of what they have and enhance it further.
1: The idea is for Lucy, their generative AI co-pilot, to help bring some consistency and efficiency to the process. I asked Selena for some examples of what that looks like today and how the tools may evolve over time, given the current challenges that financial institutions have as they consider implementation of generative AI.
5: What the Lucy Copilot solution does, for example, is um, when our solution then takes the information and presents it, Lucy then enhances it. So I can give you some examples. Um, One is if you have a junior analyst investigating a case and they want to understand, for example, what rapid movement of funds is, they can ask Lucy what it is and Lucy will explain rapid movement of funds as well as the company's procedures for how to further investigate it as well as a suggestion of the next steps. And so this helps bridge the different skills that analysts may have because Um, several different people might receive a case with the exact same information and go through different processes and procedures to um, investigate it further. And so we help standardize that process. Um, Another practical example is writing a disposition narrative, summarizing your decision of why you've decided to further investigate a case or mark it as a false positive. And so, you know, who really likes like writing these cases Uh, narratives. It's like writing an essay in university, for example. And so um, this can often take a very long time. And what Lucy does is it then generates this disposition narrative based on the information that it's gathered. But the human is always in control of the process and uh, can edit the narrative as well as is required to review it. So our solution is modular and um, Financial institutions can decide what they would like to incorporate based on their needs and also what features within each module they would like to leverage. Uh, So different companies might want to, for example, use our rule builder if they're just um, doing their financial crime investigation using rules, whereas others might be more comfortable leveraging AI. And with the Lucy co-pilot at its launch, we launched it with 27 skills of things that it could do to help improve the lives of analysts. And we are working on always adding to this database of skills. And by the end of next year, we hope to have over 100 skills. One thing that Lucinity is um, looking into is the ability to um, summarize uh, documents, for example. So taking a look at an annual report and asking uh, Lucy questions about the annual report and pulling information from it, and then Lucy being able to, like, attribute uh, the source of that. So one big challenge with uh, generative AI is actually around the attribution of it and... um, the reliability of generative AI in terms of how how did ChatGPT come up with this answer? Like, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And that is a challenge with financial institutions. And it's one of the biggest um, roadblocks that prevents financial institutions from implementing it, because when it comes to the regulators and auditing their processes, how do they know that their processes are robust and that a human has actually gone through the due diligence to make sure that the information is accurate so they don't want a black box yes exactly so i think that one of the uh, key um the, one of the keys to implementing it is the ability for generative ai to explain how it came up with its answer and where its answer came from
1: financial crime is a global problem But Lucinity thinks its base in Iceland can help them connect the dots. There could be huge benefits from increasing collaboration across multiple institutions and multiple governments, and early tests seem to bear that out.
5: Yes, so in Iceland, we are um, serving over 30% of the market. So we have um, a lot of the major banks here, and our goal is to make to start off with, actually, Iceland being one of the most one of the safest financial uh, systems in the world. Most of our customers are within Europe and North America, and uh, we're within Europe. For example, one of our customers is Currency Cloud. They're a visa solution. Uh, they use Lucinity's uh, Actor Intelligence and Case Manager, and Paleo uses Lucinity's whole suite. Um, within the U.S., there are also um, Tier One banks that we work with. And since we launched Lucy, the response has been just overwhelming. Like we are gaining so much more uh, traction and visibility from um, large banks and financial institutions. So the way that the financial crime prevention currently works typically is that it is within an, a single institution, which is actually a really huge um, problem in the industry because um, it is much more difficult to actually uh, track down the financial crime and what the the power of um, financial crime prevention is really harnessed when you're looking at it across institutions and across borders. So Lucinity has actually recently collaborated with the Bank of International Settlements, uh, the Nordic Innovation Hub, on a project called Project Aurora, wherein we tested different privacy-enhancing technologies in order to see if we could um, analyze the data across institutions and borders without sharing sensitive information. It was a big success, so we launched a proof of concept, and we tested uh, different methodologies uh, to see if it was more effective to um, fight financial crime cross institution and across borders. And it definitely is more effective. Uh, the results were really clear and there is uh, tangible use of these uh, different approaches. Um, but the thing is that we require collaboration from different institutions. Like, it's not just that we can deploy this across different um, banks and fintechs. We really need collaboration from government, law enforcement, and and financial institutions to make this happen.
1: As with any kind of AI use case, more data and more diverse data sources help to improve outcomes.
5: Right now, what we're trying to do do is to tap into various pools of data that um, financial institutions uh, want to have access to. So for example, one is like Lucy can search the internet. The other ones are that we are integrating with um, different companies like neterium and Sion. So neterium does name screening and you're, it's able to help uh, detect whether a certain name is associated with any sanctions, for example, or Sion is able to um, and, uh, help us detect in real time whether uh, a transaction is fraudulent. And so Uh, with Lucy, you're able to tap into all these different systems and pools of data and then come up with a more uh, comprehensive response.
1: Well, could Iceland, this tiny country about the size of Kentucky, out in the middle of the North Atlantic, actually become the global center for using data to prevent money laundering and financial crime around the world?
5: I would say that um, if we were to pick a place to start, I think Iceland would be great. (laughs) When I first... um, Moved to Iceland and started working for Lucinity. It was quite interesting because I was like, "What is this um, anti-money laundering, financial crime prevention company doing, like, in an island in the middle of nowhere?" And it's always interesting when people hear that Lucinity is from Iceland. It always like gives them a spark in their eyes and makes them feel like, "Oh, Iceland! Like, well, what are you? What is it like there? What are you guys doing there?" And It's a really unique and interesting place to be because um, Iceland has a really strong talent pool of um, technical uh, professionals and programmers, for example. And we're also um, ideally situated in between North America and Europe. And so we have a presence in Europe, we have a presence in North America. And it's also a great place to start off in terms of like, it's really easy to just call up the chief executive officer of a bank or even, uh, you can ask one or two people and you can call up the president of Iceland, for example. And uh, by doing this, Iceland is like a great place to start collaborating and for us to have launched our initial products, for example. So we launched, our. one of some of our first customers were Icelandic banks. Um, and then to be able to test different technologies and then scale that globally. Uh, so as we can see, by having a presence in um, Europe and then also in the U.S., it's really easy then for us to um, have this like global reach.
1: Iceland is a land of diverse landscapes. Waterfalls, hot springs, glaciers, geysers, black sand beaches. Diverse seasonality, with the midnight sun in the summer contrasting with the polar nights when the sun barely rises above the horizon. During my visit in early November, I was surprised that sunrise was not until 9.30 a.m. But that's life at 66 degrees north. And yes, I did get to see the northern lights. They were amazing. Diversity is a way of life in Iceland. The country is ranked the number one most LGBT-friendly country in the world based on rights, laws, and freedoms, as well as public attitudes. And for the 14th year in a row, it again ranks number one in the World Economic Forum's annual global gender gap report, having closed more than 91% of the gender gap, compared to a global average of just under 69%, and compared to 75% for the U.S., which ranks 43rd. Men and women are nearly at parity when it comes to educational attainment, and women in Iceland have a high rate of political participation. Over 40% of ministerial and parliamentary positions in the country are held by women. In 1980, it was the first country in the world to elect a female president, and there has been a female head of state for 25 of the last 50 years. Iceland is one of only two countries where women have held the highest political office for more years than men the other being Bangladesh. Despite all this, a gender pay gap stubbornly persists. 90% of Icelandic women, including the Prime Minister, participated in a one-day strike in October to protest the gaps, along with gender-based violence, and to call attention to the unpaid work that often falls on women, such as childcare. The Nordic Women in Tech Awards is an annual event that recognizes and celebrates the achievements of female role models who are leading the movement for more women in tech in the Nordic countries. This year, the event took place in Reykjavik, and the First Lady of Iceland, Eliza Reid, took the opportunity to say, good enough is not good enough when it comes to measures of diversity, equity, and inclusion.
6: You know, I've spoken a lot about Gender equality, women's empowerment, Iceland, on lots of different occasions. People always say, what can we do better? And it's always those three things that I mentioned you know, gender-based violence, diversity, uh, private sector investment. But I've now decided recently that there's another thing that we need to be looking at, here in Iceland at least. And I suspect a lot in the Nordic countries. And that's what I call the inertia of good enough. And what do I mean by that? In Iceland, in the Nordics, we have achieved a lot when it comes to working towards greater balance. And that's something we should absolutely be celebrating and that that's important. But is good enough really good enough? Uh, is the fact that in theory uh, you know, women and underrepresented genders are entitled to equal pay for equal work good enough, even if that doesn't always happen in reality? Is the fact that we have excellent paid leave for both parents good enough if not enough fathers are actually taking the paternity
2: leave? Mm-hmm.
6: I don't know that it is. And I think that in these countries we, where we have so much fortune and privilege, we need to remember that this is a constant uh, battle and a constant area that we need to continue to look at. Because I don't think that good enough is good enough. Woo!
1: Reed was born in Ottawa, Canada and moved to Iceland in 2003.
6: I say that especially as a proud Icelander of foreign origin who speaks Icelandic with accents and makes many an embarrassing mistake in, in the language, but knowing that that does not mean I have something less important to say. Um, I also think in the private sector in Iceland, We actually only come in 57th when it comes to gender representation and management of senior companies. I think that that's something we're probably far behind our Nordic friends in. But it's also very important to be talking about who is controlling the money and the pocketbooks and the innovation and the development. And that's why this sort of event is so important when we're talking about the tech scene and making sure that we're getting a diverse range of ideas and solutions making sure that it's women who are doing investing and that women-led companies and and diverse groups are being invested in.
1: Despite good enough not being good enough, Iceland is well-positioned to build on its leadership role. For the second time in three days, we heard again from the ubiquitous Æslaq Anar Sigur Iceland's Minister of Higher Education, Science, and Innovation. She was previously the youngest female minister appointed in Iceland's history and the youngest minister of justice ever appointed in world history. She talked about both the risks and the opportunities of technology in driving better outcomes in equity and inclusion.
7: And it is really exciting to have those pillars together and to be following everything that is happening in the Nordic on innovation and tech where we can also be a leading example for other countries, how we do things, how we acknowledge them, and how we use all the manpower in our countries, both female and men. Because the world is just changing so fast. Equality is not given. And it's not given in tech Island. We always have to be on the lookout. Gender bias is hidden in many places and works in both directions. We see this in many parts of our society. I really believe that with those kind of women that are in this room, that we can really keep on changing the world. And there are so many wonderful things already happening that we need to cherish. And I think that this award is passed is a big part in uh, lifting up the wonderful women we have in tech in the Nordic, seeing them and cheering them on, because I know that this will matter for the next generation and this generation and the, the ones that come. Thank you so much. Welcome to iStand. I hope you have a wonderful...
1: In fact, technology itself may be part of a solution. Pay Analytics was founded when a frustrated HR manager found that several well-intentioned efforts to address his firm's gender pay gap through annual salary reviews were not successful. Pay Analytics is a suite of compensation analytics tools focused on helping companies better measure their pay gaps and better measure the tactics that actually work. So we are in the
2: business of pay equity and workplace analytics. We are here in November already, 2023. And I think we can all agree it's simply no longer acceptable to pay someone lower wages because of the color of their skin or the gender or any other demographic variable. Right? However, importantly, good intentions won't fix demographic pay gaps. So in fact, Pay Analytics was founded when an organization had measured an 8% pay gap. So what do I mean by 8% equal pay gap? It means after accounting for the job role. And the skills, and the knowledge, and the performance, a woman within that organisation could expect to be paid eight percent less than a similarly situated man. So obviously everybody was outraged, right? Eight percent is huge. So the whole management team was on the board, and everybody was going to be super mindful about it in all of their decision making, right? So whether hiring, you know, promotions, ad hoc salary adjustments, but then when they measured the pay gap again twelve months later, well, it was still eight percent. So we became very clear that we don't close these demographic pay caps with good intentions alone. So what we have done, we have built a, a cloud platform.
1: Another Icelandic company using data and analytics to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion is Alda. Sigin Jonstadter is the company's CTO.
8: I'm Sigin Jonstadter, and I'm the CTO and co-founder of Alta. Uh, my background is mainly in uh, management science and engineering. I'm a software engineer, and uh, I'm also really obsessed with uh, biases in AI right now. Um, Alta is a DI uh, startup. We're uh, just released two months ago. Uh, DEI SaaS solution for organizations uh, worldwide and uh, we are really here to change the like scenery of DEI solutions by creating like this uh, not only uh, short-term but a long-term strategy in DEI.
1: I asked Sigen how Alta compared to Pay Analytics.
8: So we're not in the same space as they are okay. uh, and uh, they do this amazing uh, pay gap analysis yes. and uh values of jobs and all of that and and help companies like close their uh, pay gap Uh, and we decided that that was a space, a crowded space and really great companies working there so our focus is always culture and DEI on that term, yeah. Uh, we come from like uh, the consulting industry. So we used to be DEI consultants and just like in-person consulting. So we did DEI and management consulting for uh, organizations in Iceland. And we really felt that we didn't have, or organizations didn't have the data needed on inclusion and experiences to really measure DEI. And there was no platform to gather the data and we we really had to create it create the metrics ourselves so we wanted to like create this platform that does that for you and uh, we really saw that um, DEI is just something that everyone wants to do better and improve and have covered so the need was to digitalize it Uh, the need was to create something scalable more scalable than the consulting exactly and we wanted to go global with this, uh, like you said, like standing on the shoulders of the Icelandic ways of reaching equality.
1: Transitioning from a consulting company to a software company has been a lot of hard work, but clearly it's a labor of love.
8: I love it, so it's two months old, so I like I love it like a, a baby, you know? Right. Um, so we started software development one year ago, and we set out to just create the digital version of our consulting methodology. Um, It has uh, a dashboard for HR or DEI managers, where they can have a complete overview of their DEI metrics, gathered both from their HR data. And we just integrate with your HR system and you pull up the data there and display it. And then we have this inclusion survey to measure how people feel at work and if there is a difference between which groups you belong to in the scale of inclusion. And we are always doing that. We're always trying to identify if the, diff, if the experience of people in the workplace is different depending on who they are. And then we have like a detailed action plan for you. Once we have the status completely uh, analyzed, what to do and how to improve and where to go. So you set goals within the platform, and then we have an AI-driven action plan tailored for you on how to reach those goals. And uh, we are also a production company, so we release micro-learning courses for both managers and employees on DEI topics, uh, which is uh, like an endless topic list, of course, of DEI topics. Um, But we are trying to... um, take our consulting experience and we use humor and games and empathy, creating exercises to get everyone to the table and uh, bring people uh, into the like, uh, empowerment of wanting to know more and liking learning about DEI.
1: What is the role of AI in what you're doing?
8: So um, it's basically uh, uh, an amplified intelligence based on our consulting experience. So obviously, the recommendation engine in the software now is based on our experience and what we know is supposed to be done when. Uh, But I'm developing like uh, with a team now of data experts, uh, an AI model, machine learning to begin with, obviously, to uh, further uh, enhance these recommendations.
1: So give me a kind of a practical example. If I'm a manager of a company and and I employ your platform, Mm -hmm. how's my life different?
8: Okay, great question. So the life of like an HR DEI manager today in a lot of cases is that they have have the role of uh, owning DEI in the company and uh, they lack maybe the overview of these metrics that you need to have both in terms of compliance and also in terms of just reporting to your senior managers or your co-managers. on these issues. So you have, maybe in your HR system, you have all the data, but you don't have the analytics to do it and you have to pull it out, analyze it in an Excel sheet, put it into a PowerPoint and measure the data there. Um, with ALTA, you have just a real time connection with your HR system and somebody like creating the metrics for you, the key metrics to measure DEI. And you can also then see the trends and get recommendations. So we're taking the analytics part of DEI, the weight of your shoulders, because we're both analyzing it and also like giving you the action plan and telling you like, hey, this is interesting. Please do this. Blah, blah, blah. Then we have the clear goal settings. And this is so important. Like uh, every manager knows you have to have some KPIs and something to benchmark against. And in Alta, you can benchmark with others in the solution and how they're doing in DEI both in terms of like, you can benchmark with companies from the same industry, the same size, something that makes sense to you. And then you can set like a goal that makes sense for your organization, based on your needs. Um, And then, of course, the micro learning is a complete game changer in DEI learning. A lot of DEI learning is now in either workshops in person, really heavy to plan, really time consuming for people, and a lot of times it's not as effective as something you would do in like one or two minutes in a game on your phone so you have like the time saving there and just the the like organizing and everything get rid of that and you have something always ongoing in DEI learning also I must say a lot of like uh, DEI topics and learning courses can be a bit like heavy you know, it's a sensitive topic and it can not be heavy and you can not get people on the offense kind of like defensive about um, if you're talking about maybe unconscious biases or something, people are not always open to learning about it. So we're trying to take the approach of like, it should be fun. DEI should be fun. It should be work that you love doing and it should be uh, topics that you would love to know more about. And we want to create this like fun and rewarding experience for employees in that.
1: Why did you start the company?
8: So, so me and my co-founder, Thore, uh, we started the company, of course, uh, because of our passion for DEI. But we also just want to make a great business and we just want to uh, share this uh, method with the world. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a short answer, but I can also give you the, I'm just going to say, like, it's just, we were in desperate need of a solution <laughs> like this.
1: <laughs> yeah, it didn't exist, so we had to
8: Yeah, it. exactly. Well,
1: uh, where are you in terms of roadmap and traction, um, funding? Like, where, mm-hmm. where's the company today?
8: So, we uh, got our pre-seed funding uh, 18 months ago. Uh, it was 2.2 million euros from uh, VCs and Angels. And uh, we just opened like a seed round a month ago, which we will probably close now in uh, Q1 2024. Um, we launched the product, it went live two months ago, after like one year in development, that we really like hit all our milestone in that development process, because we have an amazing team. And just like, I can't say it often enough, like how grateful I am for the team. And um We initially thought about just launching in the Nordics, and of course, we have a really strong market position already in Iceland. We have, uh, I think, 12 now uh, customers uh, started before we launched, so we have 12 pilot customers developing the product with us, and uh, yeah, we're set out for the Nordics in Europe, but we have also quite like early and quite unexpectedly gotten attention from U.S. companies. So we've been getting a lot of uh, requests already. Is that in
1: the plans or was that a surprise?
8: Well, in the future, obviously. So it came uh, maybe earlier than we expected. Uh, But maybe that just uh, talks to the need that I'm talking about. And uh, uh, we are really, uh, the solution is really compatible with any Uh, you know, location. So it really doesn't matter to us, but... uh, You don't think you'll have to
1: adapt too much for the U.S. market?
8: We'll have to be compliant there. And we uh, just developed everything from scratch uh, for the world, you know. So we localize really heavily for markets, both in terms of language and culture and compliance. And that's just always been a huge part of, uh, like, the technical architecture of the solution, Uh, always keeps this in mind. We need to be able to uh, localize on demand, basically. So we're set up for success in that area.
1: In the US, there's also been a little bit of um, a backlash uh, of the DEI from some. Have you seen that in other countries or is that unique to the US?
8: I haven't seen um, such like um, a strong backlash, like the anti-woke laws, which is like the biggest backlash I've seen just uh, ever. In in DEI um, in other countries, I haven't seen that, and uh, I think like in terms of the anti woke uh, or the states that have implemented or like uh, executed these laws, uh, we would probably be illegal there. You know, mm. so the the micro learning is uh, against these anti woke laws. It's uh, education about uh, people and their, uh, and their diversity. So uh, we at least we won't go there. To begin with, um, um, but hopefully this will just change back and the backlash in uh, all like um, uh, all, uh, all like human rights movements and DEI, uh, it's something that happens regularly, but I feel like uh, it impacted this DEI business less than we originally thought. We, Of course, we were worried when we saw this happening, but research like Gartner research shows that executives are... Uh, Increasing or just keeping their current spending in DEI, because I think people just want to fight back against that
1: backlash. <laughs> you keep mentioning uh, metrics. What are kinds of metrics are you talking about beyond just demographics?
8: Mm-hmm. So we really look at, of course, the different groups within the company. We're always focusing on that in all of our analysis. Um, so we uh, we analyze inclusion uh, and we built the inclusion survey on our qualitative interviews from the consulting. So we found a way to like quantify uh, experience, basically. And uh, that's like a key metric for us, of course, to measure inclusion uh, based on the DEI groups. Then we have a uh, hierarchical like uh, analysis of like career development within the company. And then we, of course, analyze recruit the talent pipeline and the retainment of people. So we're looking at maybe um, like, if, uh, like a classic example, you're a tech company, you're having a hard time hiring women for technical roles. And you do uh, like a, you want to do like a, an improvement project on that and you manage to hire 50 women one year and then you forgot to create an environment where women would thrive as much as uh, other genders. So then you have a problem retaining women. And we point that out and analyze it and come with, up with suggestions on how to improve on that. Uh, this is like a key thing because uh, we all know how um, difficult it is to retain good people. And it's more, of course, the most valuable thing you have as an organization is your uh, employee group.
1: So you've talked about the diversity and inclusion parts. What about equity? Uh, are you measuring that as a part of the metrics?
8: Yeah, so we have some analysis on basically, uh, you know, equity as in terms of like, uh, just everyone having the same uh, rights and opportunities and uh, access. So we measure equity as well in the survey. And we also talk about equity a lot in our courses and how to create an environment where everyone matters and, and thrives. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is maybe harder to measure.
8: Yeah, and that's like what's so uh, amazing about the work we did, like developing this quantification of these really qualitative topics. And uh, we have really strong research partnerships uh, with some organizations here in Iceland and the University of Iceland. And that's why we always keep, you know, being cutting edge because we just partner with the people who are the most academic experts in this research Mm -hmm. at any point
2: in time.
1: I wanted to hear from some of the women controlling the purse strings and making the investments that First Lady Eliza Reed talked about, so I sat down to lunch with some of the country's top women VCs at Hovestuden, an art and culture center in Reykjavik that permanently displays Chromo Sapiens, a multi-sensory, large-scale art installation by the artist known as Shoplifter. The immersive walk-in installation consists of three caves made from Shoplifter's signature material vibrantly multicolored synthetic hair extensions and filled with soundscapes from the Icelandic band Hum. The intent of the experience is for visitors to walk in as homo sapiens and walk out as chromo sapiens. Over a smorgasbord of small plates and a few cans of collab, a dozen or so VCs and entrepreneurs talked about the tech landscape in Iceland and the Nordics. We talked about technology and innovation and fintech, DevOps and renewable energy, and more than once the conversation turned to health tech.
2: So uh, when I'm investing myself, I mainly, but not solely, invest in in healthcare and health tech companies. But I'm uh, I'm also chairman of the board of uh, a VC fund, or actually two VC funds
1: and one health tech company in particular. Kerasis, which in July became the first company in Iceland to be valued over $1 billion, Iceland's first unicorn, when it signed an agreement with a Danish company to be acquired for up to $1.3 billion. Kerasis is a medical wound care company which develops products from fish skin that was a byproduct from the fishing industry that used to be disposed of and is now used to protect and regenerate human wounds and heal damaged tissue. So, health tech meets the blue economy. Intact fish skin is being used for the management of chronic wounds such as diabetic wounds, pressure ulcers, vascular ulcers, draining wounds, trauma wounds, and surgical wounds. Because there's no known viral transfer risk between North Atlantic cod and humans, the Kerasis patented fish skin is only gently processed and retains its similarity to human skin, unlike mammal-based skin. Another company that came up more than once in the discussion was Prescribee, which is taking a novel approach to curbing opioid addiction. We're really looking at the problem from one angle, and there's another angle, a big angle, that we haven't spoken about as
3: much, and that's what leads up to people getting addicted. You know, so there are several ways how, how people end up with addiction.
1: Prescribee was started by Kartan Thorson, a physician who dealt with the challenges of opioid dependency and addiction firsthand, often writing 30 prescriptions a week, knowing that statistically one in 10 of his patients would end up developing an addiction. It's not exactly fintech. Okay, it's not really fintech at all, but it's a huge problem and they're taking an innovative yet practical approach to solving it. If you want to hear more, you can listen to the entire interview on the Futurist Podcast right here on Provoke.fm or anywhere you get your podcasts. During my week on this tiny island in the middle of the North Atlantic, I talked to people from fintech and other industries, and the theme that kept coming up over and over again was that of building bridges, bridging gaps between established companies and startups, between industries, between cultures, countries, and continents, building bridges and connecting dots. And that's really what FinTech has become, the connective tissue that connects us all in an increasingly interconnected world. I also grew increasingly convinced that, one way or another, it will all work out okay. Teta or dust. Thanks to everyone who made time to talk with me. Thanks to Partners for the kind invitation to Iceland And thanks most of all to our gracious and generous hosts from Business Iceland for arranging the interviews, the tours, and countless little details, including driving me to the local soccer club, Natsbyrnfile Gräkevik, to make sure I didn't leave town without a jersey to add to my collection. And that's not to mention all of the delicious Icelandic food and drink. Skål.
0: That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship, so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.